All right, folks, welcome to another episode of Call and Shots. I'm Seth Partnow. I'm joined today by my longtime frenemy, is that fair to say, uh, Kirk Henderson of Mavs Moneyball. Uh, the Mavs are in the second round, uh, and they, I would say, were reasonably comfortable in the first round, but now they play the best team in the NBA, the Phoenix Suns. So Kirk is here to, to talk us through last round and preview next round. Uh, sure. Kirk, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I always like talking to you. Yeah. Um, so I think we even you had a little scare when 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 Luca tweaked his calf last game of the regular season. I think there was a lot of agitation about that, but it seemed like it was mitigated by the fact that you thought you had a pretty decent first round matchup, and that's kind of how it played out. Yep. Yep. I don't. You know. It's such a it was such kind of a roller coaster because the Mavericks, if you really look at their roster, only play about six and a half guys. So when you lose any one of those guys, it calls into question performance over a seven game series. And that they lost the best one, it just set it up for for kind of catastrophic failure. The 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 challenge or uh, the the flip side of that was that they were playing a team that might that is facing like a full on identity crisis. And, you know, it's just the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that was what the Utah Jazz were. And to, to the Mavericks' credit, they had an absolutely outstanding defensive game plan, and the Jazz had no counters. I think on top of that, I think even even if the Jazz were quote-unquote right, I think it is a – if there was a playoff team against which – you could the Mavs could function offensively without Luca. I think it's probably Utah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe the way the 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 Nuggets ended up dealing, um, but I, I think like that would have been like a wildly entertaining series just because there'd be more offense. I mean, this game, the Mavericks ran the Jazz off the three point line. I want to say, and I'm just I should have I should know this off the top of my head, but the Jazz like led the league in three point attempts or at least volume, and then the Mavs Mavs just ran them off the line. Just it, there were games where they were shooting like twenty three pointers, which it, it was crazy. And just seeing the Jazz inability to to figure out how to score at the rim over a, a you know front line of of Maxi Kleba and Dwight Powell was really it was odd. I mean, there there was there's you know I, I think in the coming days and weeks we're gonna you know find out that there were more problems kind of there but it's just like nothing that they did seems to work and it frustrated Mavs fans to no end where most of what the discussion was the last two weeks was how the Jazz weren't working over what the Mavs were doing well but it was just it was crazy to watch a team that was that good in the regular season night in night out be unable to score I mean, there were there was one stretch of quarters, it was like first through third quarter, where the Jazz went 18 points, 18 points, and 19 points. Like, it was it, – I, I joked and said it looked like, you know, 2000, 2001 era basketball points. It was, it was strange. No, I think – and there's plenty of room for both. I think the, the, uh, the, the, the Mavericks contributed, but the Jazz also um, – you know, contribute to their own downfall. I mean, one of the things that I I was looking at over the course of that series was Utah was actually for as much as like people have talked about like their blunder offense. Uh, the Jazz were actually not a big ball movement team in terms of uh, they had you know only about just under half of their shots came uh, with with touch time of two seconds or less this year, which is reasonably like off of a teammate creating a shot. And that was second lowest in the league. They're all the way down to 41% in this series. Now, again, <laughs> some, of the, some of that is Utah, but uh, some of that is Dallas. So what what did they do? And, and you know, shouts to uh, to my old co-worker, Sean Sweeney, who is the the, uh, the defensive architect of, of the Mavs scheme. What, what was it they were doing that was working so well? So please tell me if I'm wrong here, because you frankly understand the defense a lot better than I do. But it kind of like a layman's, I would say they said, Boyan Bogdanovich, you're going to beat us. Where Boyan had a steady diet of shots, maybe not necessarily from three, but he was able to get to the rim and they were chasing him off the three-point line. And essentially said, all right, Boyan, you're, you, need to, you need to be the one that comes through because the Mavericks have Donovan Mitchell in absolute prison, which they did. Uh, and, and it's making me wonder to the point to where the last two postseasons, whether Mitchell just hit 
was just hot at the right time because he went from, you know, spicy the past two two postseasons to just stone cold. It was kind of frightening. And I, and, I have a thought on that. Okay. Um, I think that uh, mm, this is something that's come up repeatedly. If you if people go back and listen to the podcast I did uh, about a month ago, probably with Ben Taylor, we got into this a little bit. Oh and, yes, I did hear that one. Yeah, and so I think that uh, in some ways Mitchell's playoff rep is burnished by him having some hot shooting on tough shots in series they lost. So it was kind of like they only played they played seven games. Mitchell was great, and then if they'd have moved on to the next round to play like Phoenix or something like that, um, then all of a sudden those numbers would have come. And I think that he he took his sort of normal diet of tough shots. He probably wasn't right physically as uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't in the same kind of flow as he's been in the past, and he didn't make shots, and yeah. it was ugly. And he and you know he did the thing he kind of tends to do where he. Um, you know, kind of took them out of the offense they want to do. But again, also credit to the Mavs because the Mavs sort of seem to be perfectly fine. If Donovan, Donovan Mitchell, if you want to shoot 17 foot pull-ups, be our guests. And really like, like one of the, so as a Mavs fan who watches the game and I want to talk about what else I think the Mavericks did defensively. One of the things I thought that they gave the jazz or at least forced the jazz into taking were these little like eight foot, floatery type shots that I have seen Luka Doncic and Jalen Brunson crush teams on. And I've taken for granted the fact that that's actually a pretty hard shot for a lot of guys. It's, it's required, you know, anybody that's ever even like for fun shot around on an NBA rim, that dang thing is tight. And if you just, if you hit the, the ball the wrong way, it's not going in. And, you know, we watch Conley struggle a lot. I mean, Conley, Conley's either, either you know, banana left on the counter too long or he was injured. And then the other thing I thought Dallas did was say, you need to pass the ball to Rudy rolling to the rim. And they either couldn't, wouldn't, or when they did, Rudy struggle bust. He hit a hard time. I, I you know, yeah. I mean, again, we well, don't. Need, I, I think we don't need to belabor that. I, well, I feel like I, I, I feel like there's though. no topic I've talked about in the NBA more this year than the Jazz's poor use of of Gobert. Well, in that series, so, so it's like it's, the Rudy stuff is interesting to me because there's a lot of chatter about Rudy to Dallas being interested. Jason Kidd kind of put the kibosh on that in his yeah. quotes yesterday to the media. But it, just in terms of a philosophical point of view, I'm I'm interested. Do you think that the Jazz don't know how to pass to Rudy Gobert? Because that is my takeaway. I watched that and thought, you, you know, you're missing a 7-2 guy with an enormous wingspan by placing the ball behind him on rolls. Like, Luca once again, has spoiled me because he's made Dwight Powell, you know, Dwight Powell, like, hit 50 or 67% of his shots from the floor this year because Luca basically put the ball above the rim and said, go dunk it. And so it's like, when I watched those two comparison points, I'm like, man, Mitchell cannot pass was really my takeaway. I, I think that there's there's something to that. Um, I mean, you, you look at that, who is the who is the pick and roll operator who, who actually gets teammates the ball? Like Conley has been that in the past, but most of his career has been working with – he hasn't – not a lot of time in his career has been working with a, a vertical lob threat like a vertical roll threat. It's more like Zebo get the ball on, in a spot where he can get a shoulder and a guy and shoot a little jump hook or Mark get the Marcus all get the ball in the mid post and, and do Marcus all things. And um, especially with his sort of quickness diminished, like how many times did they sort of get an edge and, yeah. and then, then like the, the help defender, whether it was Max Kleba or Dwight Powell or whoever have to actually commit to stop the ball. I can think of one time in the series, and that was the lob play at the end of game four. Like, yeah. that was, you know, it, it probably happened more often than that, but it's sort of um, the, the the mental image of my mind when, of that series whenever Utah ran a pick and roll was sort of uh, ball handler defender kind of staying attached to the hip and the, um, the, the screen defender kind of doing that 50-50 thing that Brooke Lopez is so good at where he's not conceding the jumper or the floater, but still staying attached to the roll guy. So there was no, like, it, it would have taken a good pass rather than just the obvious throw-it-anywhere pass that, that you might get if you actually create some separation from the original well, screen. 
Well, and this is something that uh, the separation from the screen is something that you watch, uh, that you see more and more on tape where coming off the screens, you know, you don't have a tight diet, like, like they're more going, the ball handler would almost probe towards like the short corner area instead of the, and like, that's a, you know, one of the things that Luca's so good at is he, he basically rides the lane where he's right along the free throw line. And then he forces the defenders to choose. So he's, he's throwing a literal shorter pass. Sometimes the angle's a little harder, but it's, it's a different deal than when you're throwing like a 12 foot pass and there's two guys in between and you got to like place it right over the rim. I don't know. Maybe I'm overreading into that. No, I think, I think that's right. And I think that there's sort of the difference between, you know, I don't think it, it's tough to say, maybe you can answer this for me. I don't think for most of the series that he came back in, I don't think he looked completely comfortable physically. But it's mm-hmm. always sort of hard to tell with him because he's well, kind of who looks right physically at this point. Like that's yeah, kind no, of deal. Yeah, but I mean, like, like is he kind of is he a little bit like slow, a little bit hobbly, or is he just moving at Lucas speed? Oh, but okay. because he's you know six eight and two forty five or whatever he is, he can kind of he gets the he doesn't need to run away from you. He just needs to get in front of you and kind of, as you say, kind of with his like thinking of a pick and roll, like on the right side, instead of, you know, sprinting down the lane line, he can kind of hold you off with his left hand while he's kind of, you know, slowly dribbling towards the rim and saying, are you going to come yet? Are you going to come yet? Are you okay, <laughs> I'm going to shoot a floater or you came. I'm going to, I'm going to throw the lob. Yeah. And a player with more reliant on sort of burst, um, like Mitchell, if he's, if he's a little bit out of sorts, like he's not creating the same sort of threat. Right. But, and I'm, you know, it's, it's at that point, it just sort of like their offense became such a grind. And when, you know, the Mavericks would, would challenge three point shots really, really hard. It, it, they just didn't really have a lot of definitive answers. And I think that's the thing, you know, um, someone in the chat asked earlier is like, you know, why does Quinn Snyder keep getting called like such a good coach if he's not making any adjustments? And some of that I think has to be on the front office. Like it felt like they slowly stripped this jazz team for parts. And then when, you know, Joe Inglis goes down with the, the torn ACL, like that was, I don't think any, any appreciation over the long term, except for like basketball, you know, like super nerds really understood like the fact that he was like the connective tissue to the roster. I mean, you've, you've, you've heard me go off in previous playoff runs. It's like, why don't they just run the, the Ingles go bear pick and roll more? Cause that's the, mm-hmm. like their most, because, you know, we just talked about the thing of, of using size and sort of, craftiness to not need a lot of separation but still be able to make a play. Um he's left handed, but that's Joe Engels too. Yeah. Um and and so that's a that's something that was, you know, okay, everything's going to hell. Let's just do this thing and we know we can get the defense moving a little bit. And they didn't have that. Yeah. Um, but can, yeah can I ask you oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm your was, show. Yeah, well, I mean Mavs offensively, um you know, I think we've talked about it. I've never been the biggest Jalen Brunson fan. The whale of a series from Jalen Brunson. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because if we're going from the series where he might have been most primed to cook to the series where he is least primed to cook, in my opinion, um, the the Mavs, the Mavs bristle at this notion. But the fact remains is that Jalen Brunson is 6-1. Um, and he was so good against the haphazard wing defense of uh, the entire jazz roster. And he, he plays this very interesting in-between game where his game relies on athleticism, but it's not necessarily speed. And it's not, it's like a power uh, or it's a combination of power and herky jerky quickness. He where plays bully like, ball. Yeah. Yeah. But bu- bully ball at like the 15 foot area. And it throws some of the guards that he he deals with off because he's just able to shimmy and move and get to where he wants to get to get his shot off. And when his shot is falling in that like like let's say the eight to sixteen foot range, it, it's very frustrating to guard him. And one thing that became clear with Jason Kidd was Kidd gave him a lot more freedom. I love the Mavericks where they talk about oh well he's, he's developed more. Well, he's a point guard that won two national championships. I mean, the man knows how to pass. It's like what his role was determined as. And Rick Carlisle basically said, you're going to go shoot. And Jason Kidd says, you're going to go run the offense. And his, his assists went up. 
His his rebounding, I really enjoy watching him rebound. He apparently was a power forward in 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 high school because he's one of the bigger kids on his team, and you can tell that. Like, there's a lot of old school postman to his game, and he played really well against the Jazz because the Jazz are bad at wing defense. And now he's going up against the Suns, where I I wonder which Jazz defender is going to be tasked with primarily guarding him. I, it's going to be fascinating to watch because. I sort of wonder if the if the if the Suns say, okay, Luca, you're going to go. You need to score 45 points to beat us every game. We're going to put uh, Brunson in prison, Mikael Bridges prison, or I Brunson or or Jay Crowder. Which that one will be interesting because I have uh, the length of like the the length of Bridges is when we talk about like the arm span. Like his arms yeah. are just yeah. go go gadget arms. That I think is the sort of stuff that bothers because Batum like held 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 um, Brunson at bay last year. To, yeah, that was it. Was not um, Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. It was Nicholas Batum, and Batum is six eight with a huge wingspan. And I think that it's the wingspan guys that bother that bother Brunson. And Jake Crowder is six four six five, and I don't know his wingspan, but he's more like he strikes me more as like a. He's like got great feet and anticipation, and I think that's the kind of guy that Brunson can actually fake and fool. I don't know. That's sure. Yeah, my, I've not seen. I've not seen them play since like like the, these three teams <laughs> or these two teams played each other at all in twenty twenty one. They haven't played in twenty twenty two. Oh, that's not true. They played in January. Excuse me, but it's been a while. Yeah, they, I mean they haven't they haven't played in sort of the the almost the relevant like post like mm-hmm. Delta portion of the season. Yes, like was 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 Jan- Yeah, um, no. I think that's. I think in the past, like this is this part of my reticence about Brunson is like it, there's my impression has always been that size kind of swallowed him up, and not mm-hmm. like not like he can't go against a big guy, but like perimeter size. Yes, and so and I I think that's an interesting point because like you know Crowder has probably the heft to deal with like the bump better. But Bridges has the length that okay, you bumped him four inches off. He still got <laughs> he still got like you know four inches of wingspan to spare, even after mm-hmm. you created four inches more space. Because he's happy to take the like turnaround eight footer where you where you throw it's a high arcing shot. And yeah. what's going to bother you more, heft or length? Length. So yeah, and and he he did drop a couple of those in over Rudy, but I think that like. Bridges will be closer and probably springier to get to that shot. Yeah, and, and and there's also like a you can't measure this, but Brunson was feeling himself by the end of that <laughs> series. I mean, he at, at one point it may not be true now, but at one point in time, Brunson was leading the NBA in playoff points scored. And he's, I mean, he averaged like 15 a game in the paint in that series, which yeah. for a non-burner guard is is pretty impressive. Where he's going to have to thrive this series, in my opinion, is simply catching and shooting. He is a 40% three-point shooter when he catch on catch-and-shoot attempts. He took like one and a half a game, though, because he loves to fake. You, do you know that um, one of the things I hate about watching Joel Embiid is the pointless pump fake that people bite on from like 40 feet? Brunson does that at six one, and I'm like, no, just shoot the stupid thing. You're good at it. So it's, it's if he's hesitant at all and like tries to do his shimmy shake stuff against the Jazz, I sort of wonder if he gets swallowed whole against the Suns. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, he, the, the shimmy shake stuff against the Jazz worked very well. Uh, <laughs> um, so how, where do you think Luca is at physically? Hmm. <sighs> We're going to find out real soon. I don't think he's right, but I also think that he was really itching to make a difference. And I think that the the altitude also really affected him. I know that's a, it, it's not quite Denver, but it's still 4,500-foot elevation in Salt Lake. And he looked gassed. And wind for him has been a constant problem. Um he just has that kind of body type, and I think unless he stays in peak physical condition, he's he's in the summer. He's always going to have this sort of play-in mode where he gets himself right in the cardiovascular sense. I doubt he ever comes into into camp like overweight again, like he has the past two years. But playing basketball shape is just a different deal for anybody. You know, even people that play like pickups, like you can't just go out and do it. And he had like two solid weeks off where he wasn't playing, so. I think that I didn't notice any real issues with the plant foot because, again, it's his left calf. 
and and that's what like that's where he does most of his interesting kind of the, the highlight reel stuff off of is off his left foot. So I think he's okay. I, I just think it, it was really an instance of him trying a little too hard. Like he sort of makes one of the things that, that I love and hate about watching Luca is that he sort of makes up his mind that he's going to do a thing regardless of what the defense does. Like last uh, postseason, he bum hunted with the best of them. This postseason so far, he's basically, and he started this with Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, at the end of the regular season and LeBron James, where he just kind of sought out the best defender. He says, I'm going to score or I'm going to playmake on you. And there's some good, like, like actual tactical reasons for that. But then there's also just pure swagger, confidence, and arrogance. And I don't think – I hope he just, just goes out and plays the game. Does that make – am I crazy for that? Um, I don't know. There's a lot of things going on here. Like, one, I, this, this sort of gets to something that – um. It's a little bit about the Jazz series and a little bit about next series is it did seem like Dallas, like offensively, they scored fine. But that's like Lucas because Lucas is an unreal shot maker. But right. it seemed like their process got worse. Like they they had a very strong idea of how they're trying to score. And it was just like, you know, Jalen Brunson, Spencer Dinwiddie. Go. <laughs> run run fast straight at the basket or just get to the, the the front of the rim with the ball and then things everything comes from that and then like you know Lucas they did especially towards the end of some close games they did kind of the the sort of bum hunting thing but not really mm-hmm. like you know setting some sort of desultory screens to try to create a switch and then even if they got the switch it would just sort of be like Luca kind of did the James Harden thing a little bit. Yeah. And right. I wonder yeah. I wonder how you know you you compare that and it's impossible not to because they're playing the Suns. Like the Suns the Suns are surgery. Um I don't know if I don't know if you if it was you who made this comparison but I heard someone it was like uh um it might have been Brian Windhorst actually it was a scalpel versus a machete. <laughs> and and actually that wasn't quite the analogy I was going to go with. It's more of like the Suns are end of game or a scalpel and like the the Mavs are like a meat tenderizer. Like just as yeah. one and and I I I would ha- I have concerns uh, from the Mavs if, if 100% if that could work. There's a reason the Mavericks like the last time the Mavericks beat the Suns, we were still 60 days away from the first COVID case on US soil. Think about that. It's a long time. 2019 is how long it's been. And granted, they played nine times or ten times since then. And there have been some really good games. But the Suns have won every single time. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is what you just described. There's a preciseness with, with how they play. Also, the fact that they have better players. But those two things go hand in hand. And, and I have, like, I have huge concerns to where, you know, I went on a radio show this morning, and I hate to be this, like, like just boil it down, but the answer seems to be either Luca goes God mode and someone else comes along with him for the ride, or the Mavericks lose, like, a gentleman sweep. Like, the Suns are significantly better than the Mavericks. And there was maybe a little bit of uh... – like a window when, like, middle of the series, Luca's back. You're fairly comfortable. Devin Booker has a pulled hammy. But yes. Booker, Booker came back, and I don't know if he looked perfect, but he didn't. He looked closer to right than you might have expected. And, like, just having him there for at, at some level um, kind of helps put everyone else sort of in the right roles. Yes. Yes. And there's, you know... The 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 Suns didn't play that well last series. They they obviously they won, but I don't think they played up to what they would consider their standards. Some of that has to do with Book missing three and a half games. Some of it has to do with just as I I I, I mentioned I went on a Suns podcast and I said the matchup to watch for me is Jay Crowder versus the Rim because if that guy is able to hit shots, it's going to be a real quick series. If he plays how he's played this season, which is missing a lot of open ones, then the Mavericks really do have a chance. Um, there's also kind of the lingering specter of the fact that Chris Paul's, you know, he's a thousand years old and whether that holds up at a certain point in time, I'm really like Luca, Luca, I don't want to say, you know, you don't bum hunt a hall of famer, but Luca hunting 
you know, the smaller Chris Paul seems to be a really – that's one of the, the things I'm looking for in the series to see if he will actually attack him the way he has other smaller guards and the way he didn't attack the Utah Jazz smaller guards. Um, he just stuck with Royce O'Neal the whole time. So it's like there's a very narrow path to putting the Suns on their heels, and it, it feels like the game one, which is being played later tonight, is the time to do it. Like go out and like punch the punch the Suns in the mouth and then make it, you know, win three out of your next six kind of thing. What do you do if the Suns don't give up that soft switch? Like, oh, you want to run a small, small pick and roll. Okay, well, who's ever guarding Luca is still going to stay with him because we know he's not going quickly. That's, That's where the X factor for me happens to be a guy who was just nothing short of awful against the Jazz and Spencer Dinwiddie, um, where I think the Mavericks need to go real, real small. Um, Dwight Powell and Maxi Kleba might you, be I, I, That's interesting that you thought he was bad in that series. Like he was terrible. He had a tr- true shooting percentage of forty-eight, and that was after he had a good, good game, game six. No, so but I thought I thought he I thought he played better than that because again, well, especially in the, especially in the first three games, like they got so much stuff just with him and Brunson getting to the rim. Even if he wasn't finishing, they were breaking like they Utah's well, okay. defense. Defense was see that. Yeah, I, it's just being that afraid of Rudy Gobert, which he was. He didn't take any mid-range shots. He was a little frustrating. Like he is the one Mavericks guard, and I, you don't really count Luca in this, just because Luca's kind of a force unto himself. But he is capable of drawing fouls, and the Suns foul. Frankly, uh, they have a lot of bodies. They can do it. And Dinwiddie kind of probing and using his ridiculous wingspan to get shots up uh, in, in the lane is, you know, it depends on how the game's called. I hate it. I hate to be that that ridiculous, but that's just sort of where I'm thinking because. I, I think someone. You want to see a lot of Scott Foster, don't you? <sighs> well, it's just, you know, I, I, the Mavericks have these, you know, they did this against the Jazz in game six and it saved them where they went really small with Dorian Finney Smith at five. They cannot do that for more than a couple of stretches a game, but I think they have to give it a try because they have the, the scoring, these, these shot making players on the team. It's just, you know, when you run out, they have, they have, then they also have these guys, and you and I've talked about this offline where, the Mavericks just don't have the horses. You know, it, most championship teams go nine deep with nine guys that you are confident in. The Mavericks have six, and one of them is Maxi Kleba, who just goes into his shell. And then the seventh is is second-year guard forward Josh Green, who may or may not know how to play basketball. Like, things get dark for Dallas kind of in a hurry. So... You're muted. I, I am muted. I, I am muted because there was almost a, a child bomb. Um, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, 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 I think this will be an entertaining series because if there's one thing the Mavericks have shown the ability to do, it's rally back. But those sorts of rallies from deficits can really tax you, and it's not a winning formula for success over seven games. And I don't see. I just don't see them having the the bodies to be able to push the Jazz, you know, past six games. And 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 unfortunately, Phoenix is not a team that tends to beat themselves. I mean, I don't yeah, think they like, lost when trailing going into the fourth quarter of the yeah. season. Well, I mean, they they're a low tur- they're they're a low turnover team. They don't give up fast breaks. They yep. you know, it's like you know, basically the, this is the this is almost the epitome of a Chris Paul team. Yeah, in terms of just like control of the game which is interesting because in their best moments like that's sort of what luca does but it's it's just the style of it is so different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like um how do you so how are you expecting the the jazz to to match up defensively are they gonna <sighs> are you gonna keep the zone like are they gonna like let eight like let eight and eat like what's the what do you think that their best best uh plan is um, uh, I just have no idea because the, the game plan they used against the Jazz is what the, the forcing the Suns into long twos and, rim, and, and, and saying, get to the rim. Pretty good at that as a team. <laughs> I mean, that, I just, I have no idea what they're going to do. I, I sort of wonder if they seed Aiton um, and say, okay, you know, we're okay. We're okay with you punishing us, but we're going to do it. We're going to limit Booker and we're going to limit Paul. And we're just going to hope Bridges and Jay Crowder and any other, you know, and like Cam Johnson just doesn't go off. 
Yeah, uh, that's that, that's sort of my, I mean, sort of my in my mind, like like Aitens can score against the size mismatch, but he doesn't. This is going to sound weird, but he doesn't punish it. Like he doesn't put the guy in the basket with the ball. He doesn't draw fouls. He doesn't create situations where they're just playing volleyball on the backboard. So he can score efficiently. Say if they're if he's being guarded by Dorian Finney-Smith, but I like that can hurt them. I don't know if it will break them mm-hmm. in the same way as trying to trying to you know guard like Embiid or Jokic with a small move. Well, this is a fun comparison, just because it's the same team. Way, way back when the Dallas Mavericks played the Phoenix Suns and they were the run and gun Phoenix Suns. And they essentially said, Steve Nash, you have to score all the points on us. You. And it wasn't Steve's natural deal. They were, they limited Stoudemire, who was just a rim running beast. And, and I probably should have brought up this comparison because I don't actually remember if the Mavericks won. But it was a real fun, like, defensive game plan because it just puts guys into different positions. And so Aiton is somebody who I have really grown to appreciate and really am glad I was wrong about because anybody who watched him in college, he wanted to play power forward. He talked about wanting to play power forward. He, he, he envisioned himself more like LaMarcus Aldridge. So the fact that Chris Paul and the coaching staff had gotten him to buy in on a specific role has probably maximized his, his – well, it will eventually maximize how good he can be, but it also means he's not a primary guy. So it's like – you know, can, is he going to be comfortable scoring a bunch of points? And and I know that's kind of a stupid thing to say. Is a guy going to be comfortable scoring a bunch of points? But it's still it, it, it's still a thing that I'm interested to see because you know you, you watch his box scores and he does have some pretty impressive games. But it's not like it's not like they're going to him like he's prime. You know, Hakeem. Well, and and the way he scores, I mean, he gets the ball, he shoots a he shoots a quick turnaround, he shoots a little jump hook. He's like mm-hmm. so, and he's very efficient on those shots, but. What's not happening is like them throwing the ball into him and a double coming and the ball mm-hmm. kicking out and swinging around and then Cam Johnson's like sticking a corner three in the opposite corner. Yep. So it's and that's and that's sort of like what I mean by like hurting you but not breaking you in the same way. Like his impact on the game offensively is like his stats. Yep. Whereas you know more of a hub, it's like. They got those points and all the points they got, all the good shots they got from you reacting to try to get it, keep him from getting those. And I'm not sure Aiden has that impact. So that's like, I, I do. So I do, you know, the, the only problem is, is that's asking, you know, you how many minutes are you going to need from Finney Smith anyway? And then asking him to guard a seven footer and hit jump shots and, and, and it's like, hmm, but you, it's a lot of bad options. Yeah. Or a yeah. lot of then, unpalatable options. And that's why the Suns won 64 regular season games. Right. <laughs> it's why they're really good. You, uh, would you would you expect to see to, to see some zone out of the Mavs? That's uh, just something they haven't done much? Probably, but they when they've run zone they've done it with truly bizarre ma- like lineups it's like when they're trying to steal minutes with Davis Bertans <laughs> and like you'll see like a, a matchup zone with Davis Bertans at the top of it <laughs> it's like sure put the 610 guy at the top like well it's the, it's the place he can do the least damage okay okay that makes some sense it's it's <laughs> it's kind of the white flag defense for me because they've done you know, and you have experience with the sort of aggressive schemes that they've run and seen seen them in action. And I just, they can't do that against this team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, I, I will say that they are there. The aggression level is far more restrained mm-hmm. um, than than it was during you know some of this coaching staff's time with the Bucks. Like that's like you talked about, you know, um, you know, limiting threes. Um, there are far fewer instances where there's like an overcommitment and then the ball swings and there's somebody wide open. Mm-hmm. Like they're mm-hmm. aggressive, but like um, I think that they are much better at picking the spots to well, be funny. aggressive to the ball. Not to go full circle, but like one of the first things we talked about was like Rudy Gobert. And like, in my opinion, just speaking basketball, not speaking vibes or Rudy's unbelievable penchant for either saying the right thing or the wrong thing at the worst possible time. But it's like, you imagine this defense with Rudy Gobert at the back line and it instantly says, Oh, that's interesting. 
because these, you know, Reggie Bullock and and Dorian Finney-Smith are probably better defenders than than Rudy's had at least the past two seasons. And so it's like the defensive scheme that the Mavericks have is at least interesting. I just don't I just don't think it can it's a it's a really really good regular season defense, and unless they have some cute tricks up their sleeve, and Sweeney has has really pulled a rabbit out of the hat this season, so I'm not going to put it out of the out of out of point of contention. But it's it's it seems hard to it, it it just seems like a tall task for this for this roster. So where so who do you th- like? Who does Luca guard? A, he's going to get targeted really hard. Uh, you put the, him on. You put him on Crowder, right? I think you do, yeah. And you probably have him, you know, playing essentially zone by himself, like the way Harden gets treated sometimes. And just which you know, scares me because he sucks at closing out. And so basically, like as you said at the beginning of this, Jay Crowder versus the Rim is a mm. is a lot of his is 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 a, is a swing point this series. Like which that's, is crazy. It's so I mean it, it like not to tie everything back to the Jazz, but there's a little bit of. Like the one of the great sliding doors moments of last year's postseason was in one of the I think it was a game five or whichever of that that uh, Jazz Clippers series. If Terrence Mann doesn't hit his first two threes, the game they decide they're sort of not guarding him, mm-hmm. and then starts to get a little little circumspect about the shots he's taken. How differently does that the rest of that series play out? Now he Absolutely. made shots and he committed to taking every shot and he scored thirty whatever. Um, and and that's where we go. But it's not too hard to see it going slightly differently. And I think that that's like in any given game, the first couple shots Jay Crowder takes are going to say a lot. Now he's not a guy who's going to stop shooting. Um, but I think that the like the Mavs reacting and, and feeling like they have to guard him is a loss, no matter whether the shots go in or not. Yep, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely so, does. So, and you know, as uh, like, it's one of those psychological things that, like, like the numbers guy in me wants to dismiss, but the basketball guy in me is like, yeah, no, there's something to that. Like, well, you see, guy, you see a guy make a couple, like, okay, well, maybe tonight he. It's just like I like, you know, it's it, it's one of those things that seems like it's fake, but also seems real, and so I'm not sure. And but as played, like I can say that teams will almost always react to that. Well, and that's where this Mavericks team, and this is another immeasurable thing, but you can look at their record if you want to measure it, is they've shown a lot of resiliency because when they traded for Spencer Dinwiddie and they sent Chris Stapps Porzingis away, I was I had, a, I had a, a, um, a, a Spotify Live with 900 angry people in it, okay? and these <laughs> I, was on that, I was on that Spotify Live. And th- that included people who didn't like who wanted KP gone, th- but they were pissed at the return. They didn't really understand the way that. And so it's like everyone kind of thought that this is the Mavericks saying, "Okay, this is this is the Mavericks needing to you know Jason Kidd and their new GM Nico Harrison needing to reset." And that is what they did, but it worked on the basketball court where they started playing you know small ball to a degree. And they really just this this defense that they 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 made it work for just long enough, and so they've been resilient. They won like seventy five percent of their games after January first. There's there's something to this, so I, I don't worry about them getting shellacked because you know they lost to the they lost like game one they lost to the Jazz, and we all know the statistics where for, like the the team who wins the first game usually wins the series. Particularly in first round stuff, and I'm sure I'm sure second round is even more pronounced. But you know, if if the Mavericks get get whacked in this first game, I'm not going to count them out until I see them really get swatted twice. If 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 that, you know, it's it's a little ridiculous. There's not, I'm basing that nothing on faith, but it's just they they've really shown the ability to bounce back from stupid things. Sure. Um. You know what? I, this is something I'm glad you brought it up because this is something in the back of my mind I wanted to talk to you about is is the Porzingis trade, um, and like the, even if Dinwiddie okay they'd run out of bodies perhaps, but even if Dinwiddie wasn't playing, it does seem like there's an addition by subtraction element to that. Yep. And not that not that Porzingis is a bad player or but it's just they 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 have a more coherent, sensible way of playing. 
Yep. 100%. Um, so, you know, especially defensively, like what does that what does that look like to you? So, def- so to to give Porzingis a little bit of credit here. He moved so much better this season than he did in 2020-21 because he was he was a full year off his um off his uh what do you call it? meniscus tear and had a lot more confidence in how he was playing. But the bottom line is the Mavericks had sort of had to play a little bit of drop every time he was in because he cannot help and recover. He was, you know, Porzingis was labeled something because of the media market he played in. He was never the player he was advertised as. Simply never. Maybe for like... I think before the first in the injury. But the first in the injury happened like his rookie year. Like this stuff... No, it it was like his third year. Like he was like... He was, you know, he, like some of the part stuff that made him so interesting was his like lateral mobility for a seven three guy. Well, and that just went away by the time yeah. he was in Dallas. Like yes. the kinetic yeah. chain stuff really affected him, and it's really not it's not his fault because he worked so hard. But the Mavericks, as a result, it's like it was a catch twenty two. He wanted to play and play better. The Mavericks had to protect him from himself. I mean, there were instances where you see he wouldn't try on defense, and it made me crazy. But then the the answer was he didn't try because the man can't land correctly. Like he 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 never was taught how to land on two feet. He everything he did was like Tracy McGrady. It was very uncomfortable to watch. And so the the addition by subtraction happened by just knowing, you know, the the Mavs knew who they had, and so that at least allowed some consistency because Porzingis's game log was littered with he never played second night of back to back. He was just, it was too tough for him to play the, the regular season. And the Wizards are going to find that out next year. Um, the, the next big injury is, is, is just, it's, it's not, not to, I'm not being dark here. It's just a man with, he has something like 17 lower body injuries where he's missed time. Like that, that is not a recipe for success. And so with the Mavericks, they were able to find something just with their consistency. And that's what surprised me because I would have figured that the talent level would have eventually caught up with them. Instead, they're going in the second round of the playoffs. Uh, Charlie Saturday in the comments is 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 uh, reminiscing about being at MSG that game, and it was the the same game where Giannis jumped over THJ. I really, I I know they were the same season. I don't remember them being the same game, but. You know, <laughs> That would be because I that well, would be pretty I, crazy. Well, because I I one of them happened in like December, and I watched them in like our practice facility, and the other one happened in like right around the trade deadline because I was in Minneapolis. Right, um, I remember like and and because uh, I was at, staying at a friend's house while I was at a conference. I remember yelling as Gus Johnson lost his mind on the dunk. But regardless, that that may just be my faulty memory, as we as we know, like memory is a, is a tricky <laughs> thing. Um, no, this is, this is a bigger point and, and maybe you, you know, you can, I can see if you agree with me or not. Um, one of the things that I'm becoming much more of sort of a zealot or a fundamentalist about is for a team that's trying to win a championship, reliability of your top players is absolutely vital. Like you just can't, can't do without it. Um, and so there are, there are developing, and you know what? I, I was making a list of players that, that like are just on my list of if I'm trying to win a championship, I don't want them on my team. And you're bringing up a good point. Like Porzingis might be on that list. But, yeah. Okay, fine. If you Porzingis can be your eighth guy, but that's that's not a that's not a a, a, a plausibility. So like you know, D'Angelo Russell is it? You just can't. Oh yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun one too. Yeah, you can't. Um, I, like at this point in his career, certainly Russell Westbrook. I think it's fair to say that yeah. that's and like the obvious one, which I don't think we have to talk about anymore because he talks about it himself enough. Um, is the dude in Brooklyn? But yeah. Anyway, yeah. I mean, is is that is that me being curmudgeonly or 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 is that uh, well? Is, this was the problem, and and you know, I didn't understand this until well halfway through his tenure. But there are like. And I just don't understand this about NBA fans in general. Like being being fans of unbelievable basketball players makes sense. Being super fans of the B team is weird. And there's a lot of people that form their whole fan identity around players who are not quite good enough to run a team and then insist and, and argue with you about why they are. And 
Porzingis, I really are, really are you trying are you trying to get me to take shots at RJ Barrett again? Because I will. I mean, that's but. a great comp. Where it's just like, <laughs> what are we doing here, guys? Because it, again, it's the Knicks. Because they did this with KP too. Where it's just like, and they did this with Randall the year prior. Like, stop latching onto these guys who who are good. You know, like they're, they're get, not sixteen. I, they're not sixteen game players. And Porzingis I, is. Go ahead. I'm. I'm no, I get. I, I said again, like not to you know to not to. Uh, but I like again before the first knee injury, like Porzingis was a different class of players than than mm-hmm. the ones we're talking about. And, and he was really good up in his first year in Dallas. It's yeah. just the meniscus the meniscus tear of all things. Yeah. It wasn't an ACL. It was a pretty straightforward to repair tendon, but it changed his body, and he came back stiffer and more cautious. And I don't think he's getting that back. Well, I mean, I think it's it's you know the, again the the you're you're talking about levers of movement that large, like. It doesn't humans aren't meant to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, humans are not meant to be that large. I, this is, I, I have uh, one of my one of my college teammates is 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 an avid golfer, and he's six nine, and so you'd think that he <laughs> oh would. Oh my hit, god! And, and you'd, that's so you'd, too much for golfing, right? You'd think he'd hit the ball a mile, but like some of our uh, our other friends hit the ball much farther because they're more compact and like there's just less that has to go precisely right. Whereas mm-hmm. like you know. A half a degree off here or there, as all of a sudden is like a much larger, like actual distance. In the anyway, I don't want to get into like golfy stuff, yeah. but um, so, but that's I mean, so like these, like you say, it's a straightforward injury. I don't think there's any knee injury that's straightforward for a seven three guy whose game relies on mobility. Well, and our guy Jared Dubin pointed something to me last season. Where guys over a certain height, and I want to say it was like seven one, play, they rarely play more than sixty six percent of their seasons past like year five. Like the the data is stark. There are guys like Dirk and Tim Duncan who peak at like seven one or seven to seven one, and then dudes like Rick Smits and some of these really huge people who just don't play. And and it goes back like years and years because their bodies just can't take it. And Porzingis is kind of a special case. And it ought to be a bit of a, you know, not to not to cast our aspersions too far to the future, but um a legit seven three. And and it's just it's concerning with these guys because you, you know you invest you got to be able to play, I think, as an NBA player if you're a rotation guy. I think you have to be able to play 65-plus games every year if you're, if you're in, in, a, in a top seven of a rotation, particularly for a championship team. An interesting thought. I mean, I do – you know, the, the counterexample of that is, like, Kawhi. Like, um, or – Well, I meant or, for tall – yeah. Well, oh, for the yeah. I guess that's true. I'm more thinking bigs at the moment. But yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do think there's 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 a difference. I think there is also is a difference between a guy who reaches a certain level and is like on a maintenance plan versus yes. a guy who just gets hurt a bunch. Yes. I think those are like planned absences and you build your roster or in the case of 76ers in their backup center situation, don't build. Well, they did this year until they traded for Harden actually. That was I think that was an underrated part of why they were successful this year is like, you know, we've made a lot of fun of Andre Drummond over his career, but like as a backup center to Embiid, that's about the best they've, that, no, that's absolutely the best they've ever had by a wide margin. Right. Um, anyway. Uh, so, but the other part I think is, is, is it's the reliability, but also sort of the, the cogent manner of play. Cause even if there's a guy you're going to miss sometimes, like, like, as you said, you just had to play a certain way with Porzingis. On yeah. both ends of the floor, it seems like. Well, that was that – was, that's kind of the uncomfortable part about him is he really wanted touches in a specific place and did not seem to like the fact that his role was one of bright, shiny neon sign that might get the ball. Like, his best role, in all honesty, was as a, 40, as a 40-foot floor spacer. He, he would – you know, just because he could do some things, I mean – he, he, he had the worst traits of Carmelo Anthony's game. And even when he tightened some of that stuff up under Kidd, they still had to spoon feed him stuff that 
when you get away from it and you look at what the Mavericks are, like they were the they were like the 18th ranked offense for a significant portion of the year with Porzingis. And you know, you go away from him, and then you have more data the rest of the year, and then all of a sudden they're top they're top ten, and it's. Those two things are, you know, they're not straight one-to-one related, but they do have a, a thread which connects them. And that's, you know, Porzingis is part of it. No, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, when I had access to, like, the full data, if you look at guys who are, like, dive and dunk bigs, like yep. a, a player who dives to the rim off of a screen and roll will get the ball, like, once every 8 to 12 times that they do yep. that. And that's a very underrated part of, like, some of the best guys who do that. Like, the classic example is, like, Tyson Chandler for the Knicks and Mavs was, okay, I'm going to set the screen, sprint to the rim every time. Mm -hmm. I know I'm not going to get the ball most of the time, but I'm still going to do it because it's important to us. Um, I think that, that, like, Porzingis' role he was asked to play was a little bit similar. Like, Yeah. Well, and he didn't. They were afraid to roll him to the rim. Oh, but, but, uh, but it's sort of in reverse in that oh, yeah, like, yeah. you're going to pick in space and the defense is going to have to honor that. You're never getting the ball. Or you're, you might get the ball once every six. Well, eight, I mean, he stopped hitting threes. He stopped yeah. hitting threes at a rate that was actually interesting. But the role, the part that I found disappointing, and this is all due to help and protecting him, but he was a good role man. He yeah. knew where to go. He just couldn't do it because I think he was constantly worried. And because, again, the aforementioned inability to land, you know, it's like he'd land and you'd be like, oh, no. But he actually knew, like, the the ability – like, what I love about a lot of modern bigs is they're just the, – nobody teaches screening and rolling anymore at all. And it's just so evident when someone's good at it because it makes a big difference. Sure. Um. Well, what else do you want to get to about either either? I know you're going to say it's my show, but I'm interested in like things you've noticed about either the Mavs or the these playoffs in general. Well, I think it's worth mentioning for both of us in terms of the Jason Kidd stuff, where the Jason Kidd we have seen has been very different than the Jason Kidd we saw, and people being able to change is interesting to me. You know. Uh, you, I think both you and I would do since we're an hour in only hardcore people are listening. I think he would need to, he's going to need to show it for another season. But the fact that we know who his assistants are and that they talk to the media is like Igor Krakowskoff has given numerous interviews, Jared Dudley too. Like that's not a thing. Like there, there, there's a lot like actual written news stories. People forget this, but it's like when he was in Brooklyn, he sent various people away. And so it's just like the fact that it's no longer being run like a like a, a fiefdom is interesting to me. And I think it's at least worthy of recognition, if not praise. Then all the other Mavs stuff, I, I think, is is what we're seeing here is the, the new front office is having to deal with the fact that their owner and previous general manager left the cupboard unbelievably bare. And it's it's this team has a ceiling and I don't know how they break through that ceiling. That's I mean, that, that's an interesting point. Like they've. I think some of that was, I think you do have to give a little credit of, to Rick Carlisle for getting probably more out of a lot of guys than, for sure. than maybe they should have. What the, what the unfortunate part is, and this is a little bit, a little bit the jazz problem almost too, is that whether it's like Quinn's coaching or Gobert's like defensive backstop, they got a lot more out of relatively limited players that sort of you almost you trick yourself into what your talent level is. Yeah. That yeah. said, and, that said, um, I think we do, we have probably sold short the talent level of a couple of the maps. I mean, I've always been a big fan of Maxi Kleba. Um, he's, he's, he's hit or miss offensively, almost literally. Um, great defense, and then, yeah. And then, yes. And then like a guy who is, who is now that Mikhail Bridges is possibly graduating um, Dorian Finney-Smith might be the best 3 and D guy in the league right now. Sure. Which is crazy because you've had to hear me complain about him for years because he was he was in a Mavs Summer League in like 2017 where I said to multiple people, I don't see how this guy, like, what does he do in the league? And he's been amazing. But, I mean, I when I say the talent level and I'm talking about, like, the cupboard being bare, it sort of stops. Like, there's a reason they only have a six-and-a-half-person rotation where – you know, the rumor I heard way back when was that like the the Boyan or I'm sorry the uh, Boban Marjanovic signing was a Mark Cuban freelance thing done outside of Donnie Nelson, which is like what? 
You can't have that. And their drafting has been awful outside of the 2018 draft. I mean, and awful is fair because, like, you, you can – they don't have players – and I don't mean to kill Josh Green. Maybe he could turn into something. But, you know, if you had just drafted Desmond Bain or, or Sadiq Bay in either one – in, in, in that position, you, you know, or Tyrese Maxey, you'd have a better team. Like, there's just no and, – and it's it's a little bit frustrating because – I feel like the coaching staff has done a really good job with the, with the same roster Rick Carlisle had, I think largely because they like playing for him more, and I'm looking forward to more of that in the future. But it's just it, – it they have a real challenge ahead of them. They are capped out. Like, they're going to have to sign Jalen Brunson to, like, $120 million max, and I really like Jalen Brunson. <laughs> but I think you have to ask the question of was this a good idea – and, you know, Tim McMahon says that they did Nico Harrison in his first kind of on the spot moment as GM opted to not sign Brunson to a four year, 52 million or something, 50 ish million dollar extension. Woof. That's a cataclysmic failure of process. Is it? Well, I, um, the that's, result that's, is more, like yeah. the result is bad, but it's like yeah. it's at some point I have to ask myself as a watcher of this team, at what point do you keep having these cataclysmic results and stop and, and start to question the process. And again, there's a new group involved. I have to give them some time. What we know, and we know this about Donnie Nelson, is that Donnie Nelson was not particularly interested in doing the job, which made everything else really difficult. And Rick Carl was not a player that players wanted to co- or coach that players wanted to coach for. And then there's the final thing. And he had me, he came on my podcast basically to, to kind of put me in my place. He was very polite about it. But Mark Cuban was basically like, like, you're wrong about me, and I'm not sure I am. Like, those three things put together, you have the opportunity where you get a generational superstar, and I don't see a clear path forward. Now, that doesn't mean they can't do it. I'm just saying at the moment, I'm a li- I just don't see how the team gets significantly better. So what, I guess you're, you're, you're rooting for that sort of a, like an odd sort of divergence of the, the worst thing that can happen is the Mavs lose a comfortable series and Brunson goes crazy. The best thing that happens is they pull out a win. The second best thing that could happen is they lose and Brunson gets swallowed up again. <laughs> so, but I still think he's I still think he's yeah. proven himself in a league where there's just enough to where he's going to make a lot of money, and I, I hope yeah. for that for him. It's just from a team-building perspective, unless the cap spikes again, if you're giving Brunson $22 million a year or more, then you're in a tough spot moving forward because, like, they have some really So I don't contracts. think I, – I, I don't – like – if he is a closer to the guy we've seen this year in last series, I don't think that for him, it, I don't think that's the thing. I think it's, it's, that's the thing in context of all the other mediocre money that they have. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Benny Smith's contract yeah. is great. Like it's, but then you, it's, it's like the, the Hardaway junior money and the, the, you know, the Bertons and Dinwiddie money. Yeah. Though, though that's, you know, it's just a lot. I mean, yeah. like, Luka Doncic is going to make forty something million dollars next year, and he's worth every penny. But the cap still exists. Yeah. So, so well, this, this, so you're handling prosperity well, is what you're telling me. Well, I'm. I've really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed being wrong about a lot of stuff. Um, I just at the moment I see, unless like if they're to win this series, that would be incredible. I just have a hard time seeing it, and then I. The secondary thing, and Matt Moore has been teasing me about this for a while, where he's like, the worst possible outcome you could have is continue to advance, and then the Mavs just, like, re-sign all the dudes and try to run it back like they're Portland when Portland made the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, you do. The, 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 uh, so you got to say that, that, that if they, like, barring, like, injuries, if they beat Phoenix, like, that's, like, okay, that's, that's legit. Oh, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, and it would be like a testament to so many things that they had committed to and that I still sort of remain skeptical of. And it, like I would, that's what I mean by I would love to be proven wrong. Sure. Um, anything else you want to hit? Anything you want to plug before we get the, get out of, get you out of here? No, I mean, if you love hearing me ramble in here, then you should hear the, you know, the 30-plus <laughs> podcasts I do a month on Mavs Moneyball's podcast feed. So... We have a great time. Uh, prediction for the series. Put you on the spot. Let's go Suns and six, but I think the Mavs win tonight in game one and put the Suns on their heels. Interesting. That is bold. <sighs> I like that. I like that. 
But I'm I'm thinking of like Luca pulling 2001 Allen Iverson stuff where he score, you know, he pulls like a just a crazy game out. That's what I'm hoping for. So I think you're right the first time. I think this is a gentleman sweep, sadly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think that from you know looking at the standpoint at the start of the year, I think that first round win and you know getting to this point is probably. Overall, you consider the season set? 100%. That was my main goal from the start. Because it's like, if the Mavs are going to roll the same group back but add Reggie Bullock, getting to the second round feels like an attainable goal. Not only did they attain it, they they did it in a way where they were a top-four seed, which is really fascinating to me. Well, cool. Well, Kurt, thanks a lot for, uh, for joining me. Folks who are listening, I am back tomorrow. Uh, it's going to get spicy because uh, – uh, my my podcast partner Mo Dekeel is coming on free from the shackles of of Dave Dufour. So we're gonna get we're gonna get after it a little bit uh, some, sometime tomorrow middayish. So uh, watch the feed for that. And uh, thanks for listening. And talk to you all then. Thanks a lot, Kirk. Have a good night. You too.